welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. It's your host, Thomas Pierce. My guest this week is a very interesting and uh, I think will be a very fascinating conversation with Duncan Varda. Duncan is a criminal defense attorney who focuses on litigating felony cases. He currently works for the Kentucky Department of Public Advocacy and has a past experience working as a foreign service officer for the U.S. Department of State and before that was in the Marine Corps uh, for a number of years. He holds a Bachelor of Arts from the George Washington University and a JD uh, from the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, Duncan. Thanks, Thomas. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, first thing I need to say is everything we talk about today, it's my opinion. I'm not representing the Department of Public Advocacy. Uh, I'm a public defender, but this is not, uh, I'm not speaking for Kentucky or DPA. Roger. Loud and clear. I'm a lawyer, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> on that, what is the Kentucky Department of Public Advocacy? What does that body do so for DPA the people? Uh, is a statewide organization that runs public defenders. So if someone's accused of a crime in Kentucky, they come in front of a judge for their first appearance. We call an arraignment. The judge tells them what they're uh, charged with, and then they see if they want to hire an attorney. Um or if they can't afford one, then a public defender gets appointed. And I would be one of the people you might get appointed to. I work for uh, a conflicts uh, division, meaning I travel throughout the state and uh, go to various counties uh, and in circuit court with felony cases, represent clients as needed. And, and in the history of litigation and crime prosecution in the United States. This has been a integral part of the process, right? The right to an attorney yep. if, if you cannot afford one. Has that been throughout the history of the United States? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, no. As a matter of fact, there's a case uh, called uh, Gideon versus Wainwright. Went to Supreme Court and they said, uh, you must have criminal representation. I don't remember the exact year. I think it was the 1960s. Now, clearly, uh, ever since the revolution... We had uh, uh, founding fathers who said, I will stick up and defend British soldiers, right? Because we believe mm -hmm. in uh, proper defense. We believe the government shouldn't be allowed to just say someone's guilty and put them in jail without a fair argument, without a fair trial. Fundamental difference between us and then Great Britain, right? Uh, however, there was a guy named Gideon. I don't know his whole history. I believe he was... Uh, convicted of crimes, uh, it was in jail and kept writing Supreme Court saying, I need a lawyer, I need a lawyer, I need a lawyer. Supreme Court eventually agreed. Sixth Amendment says you should have a representation. It's history of our country. And so it's upon the states to figure out how they do that. So various states do various means of getting you an attorney. Because let me tell you, if you're charged with a crime, it's scary being arrested by the police. It's confusing as heck and scary as heck to be standing in front of a judge being told all the things you're guilty of and that there's going to be this proceeding that you have no clue about and they could lock you away in jail for years, right? So um, in Kentucky, we have a statewide organization. In Ohio, they do it county by county. California has county by county, but 
I believe they have a state organization that does capital crimes and some other serious crimes. Um, I don't know all the situations, but essentially it's kind of the women of the states and there are some that are better than others. I'm very fortunate to work with one that has great training, really small, but good people who work throughout the state. And we coordinate a lot with, uh, um, the federal defenders and uh, other states to provide training and uh, get better at uh, defending our clients. It's from the outside. It seems like that position is very complicated because on one hand you need to do the core role, which is to defend your client. But on the other hand, you could be educating and then also trying to console the defendant right oh man information on, that's a great that's on a great going on great point like yeah. a lot of my job is problem solving right it's uh i have a client they have no clue what's going on to one work the system explain the system and provide them the best defense that they have sometimes a lot of my clients have done the things they're accused of right and so finding the best resolution that helps them that helps the uh, the community find a way forward, uh, that can be uh, better than, uh, or the only reality, as opposed to uh, trying to make sure everyone's not guilty of something, because a lot of people are guilty of things they've been charged. But also uh, uh, ensuring that the police and the government can't overstep, that they follow the rules. And if defense attorneys don't, uh, uh, challenge the government and say, Hey, police, you did wrong, or this needs to be done better. Then what happens is eventually innocent people or people who are not guilty of what they've been accused of end up becoming default or de facto, uh, held responsible or guilty. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we believe in due process. Mm -hmm. For, for yourself, you know, what what about your path of being uh, working in the State Department, being a Foreign Service officer, your experience in the military? How did it lead you to this path where you're hmm. working to uphold the rights of individuals? Wow. So I was very fortunate as a Marine to work with awesome people overseas. I was in Iraq a couple of times, Afghanistan, some other places. Uh Worked with great Marines. It was my privilege to defend the Constitution in the United States of America overseas. That was awesome. Um, the State Department, the same thing. I represent the people in the United States overseas, uh, working with foreign governments. I got to see a lot of comparative systems, uh, rule of law, see how they handle uh, criminal acts. Uh, everyone has criminal law. Um, eventually, my family, for a multitude of reasons, decided that we wanted to be back in the States. And so we were coming back to Kentucky and uh, – I got to tell you, when I first started as a public defender, I did it because I was like, I enjoy defending the Constitution, and I feel like I see a lot of heavy-handedness in government, and I'd like to be able to counter that. I'd like to be able to represent people, um, help try and solve issues. Uh, and I started, and I was shocked, absolutely shocked, at how many of my clients were not guilty of the things they were charged of, were uh, either completely innocent or maybe they had done something wrong, but definitely not what the government was trying to say they did. Um, 
the amount of people with mental health problems being put in jails that do nothing but exacerbate their issues. And then these people come back to the community. Almost everyone who goes to jail comes home back to your community. Almost everyone. It's just a matter of time. And if you have mental health issues and you don't get treated, it just gets worse when they come back. Uh, and then of course the, the drugs and illicit substances. Um, for me, it's a very personal work. Cause I see people who are addicted more than anything. Cause it's often impoverished people and they get picked up uh, by the police and then trying to solve those issues. Because again, if you're in jail for a long time, that doesn't solve an addiction issue that just uh, delays it or exacerbates it because there are drugs in jail. Um, how poorly our jails are actually run. Uh, there are a lot of good people working in the jail system in Kentucky. There really are, but it's not the funding, the organization, uh, uh, how they're run. It's not working. It's not producing the product that the people want. So um, when it comes down to it, all my experiences from the state department, from the military, uh, I feel like I am continuing that by defending constitutional rights, by saying, Hey, the government didn't have a right to search your vehicle. They didn't have a right to stick their hand in your life, or you are not guilty of this. We need to put your story forward. And, uh, the government can't just say you go to jail. And, uh, um, I've had a really great experience working with prosecutors, judges, police. Um, it's funny. Uh, good police want to solve problems. They hate going to arrest the same people over and over again and seeing no solution. Um, so, uh, often find them working with us, testifying, honestly, uh, trying to, Hey, is there a better way? And, uh, uh, that's what's really been rewarding. Um, and truly an extenuation of, uh, working with the community and service to my country, which sounds trite, but, uh, is hundred percent, um, something that, uh, I value. Totally. And it's not trite, man. I mean, thank you for your service in the Marine Corps and going to, you know, overseas to the Middle East. That's, <laughs> that's not trite, man. That's, that's putting your commitment, you know, on the line for sure. And then continuing it. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank and you. For serving your community because yeah, cause we need people who care, right? Like it's, yes. I don't know. I'm, I'm a young person. It seems to me a lot of people are jaded. Yeah. And so to have people who are not jaded in the system, who care and who are working hard and smartly is important. Uh, it, you know, I actually had a really senior attorney ask me that very same question. Like, how, how are you not jaded after working with the system? And I'm like, man, one thing I found in Iraq, Afghanistan, all this stuff, people are, I believe people are inherently good. Like my clients, even the ones who are guilty of stuff, almost always want to help their mother, uh, want to take care of their kids. Uh, there are exceptions to the criminal justice system. There are people who do awful things. Uh, uh, and for that sort of situation, you want to make sure the system runs absolutely correctly because if it doesn't for them, it will affect people like you and your friends if they're uh, caught up in the system who might be innocent. But through and through, uh, the system has was created by the founding fathers is surprisingly elegant. It's surprisingly uh, works, especially when I compare it to other systems overseas. Well, a lot of systems overseas, the government is considered a, a neutral body, right? Uh, 
They do the investigation. They're supposed to be neutral. They make decisions based on neutrality. It's not reality. The uh, government, they have a point of view. The police have a point of view. Uh, and they're working it. They really need that confrontational aspect to say, hey, I don't think you're right. And um, uh, our system gets gummed up by the people in it. <laughs> if we don't, um, if we don't care, if we don't make the effort to uh, do things correctly, it gets way out of hand. And uh, um, I've, been, I've been fortunate. I've had some really great judges who want to see things better and use the tools at hand. I've had great prosecutors. Uh, one uh, yesterday, I went and talked to about a case or a couple of days ago, and dismissed the case entirely because once we got to the facts, like this is not justice to prosecute this case. The community doesn't want this, and I represent the community. And I'm like, thank you. And uh, uh, moving forward, uh, and uh, wow. not every problem should be someone in jail. Uh, it's like hammer and nail, right? You can't just hammer away uh, when the problem has is drug addiction, for example, um, uh, substance abuse. Uh, the local police aren't arresting huge drug dealers from overseas carrying large shipments of drugs. They're arresting individuals who use drugs on a daily basis and who almost to a person want to change. I've, I've rarely met people who are like, you know what? I got to change what I'm doing. This isn't great. This isn't helping me. So, um, uh, also, uh, we work a lot with, uh, uh, victims of course of crime and, always say that uh if there's a crime there's there's usually a victim sometimes not <laughs> but usually there's a victim who suffered there's a person who's facing possible jail time that they're suffering in some way maybe they deserve some punishment maybe they, they need rehabilitation but their family suffers no matter what uh if they provide income for kids those kids are going to suffer because then if you're in jail you're not making money you're not paying child support um uh the criminal justice system affects has effects decisions made on individuals have effects that touch your community in all sorts of different ways. Um, that, uh, uh, I feel lucky to be able to try and navigate that to find resolutions that, um, uh, yeah, help the community, but of course help my client. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned this phrase, the rule of law, mm -hmm. which is a foundational concept to all parts of life in America. So for someone who hasn't, or maybe has heard that phrase, rule of law, but doesn't really know what it is, what is it and how does it affect, how does it dictate our you know experiences day to day? So, man, that's a really great philosophical question in some ways. Uh, <laughs> uh I see you must have gone to a really good undergraduate institution. Uh, I've done quite well. No, we, we both went to George Washington. Uh, uh, so society, I think most people would agree that society needs some rules and guidance. Other, like The chaos of just acting completely individually uh, doesn't work. We want... Uh, some sort of boundaries where we can expect other social norms to occur. Uh, a simple rule might be like, we want to be able to, we drive on the right side of the road 
everyone knows this, so we don't just crash into each other driving down the road. In the United Kingdom, they choose to drive on the left. All right, rule of law. It's kind of arbitrary. Um, a lot of rules are kind of arbitrary, but they're usually made with some sort of intent and goal. Um, and these reflect values. These reflect societal norms. These reflect realities. Um, you'll see, I think we've previously talked, you and I, about gun issues. And there's huge difference in realities and values in rural Kentucky here. Uh, as there might be in the center of um, a large city, large metropolitan area. Um, uh, but rule of law ultimately in the United States is the government has monopoly on force, right? They can impose their will on individuals using force. And we have rules and we try and mitigate the use of that uh, as well-intentioned as possible, as well-intentioned as it may be, Rule of law is designed for our government to maintain order without being overly intrusive in our lives. So we have things like the First Amendment, which allows us to speak freely. We have things like the Fourth Amendment, which protects us from searches and seizures by the government. Uh, uh, so it affects your daily life. As Did you drive to work today, Thomas? No, I'm one of those techies that works from home. Okay, awesome. <laughs> Do you have a car? But I've, I've, Do you drive? I, tra- I flew. I flew uh, to Kansas the other day for work. Okay, that was my commute. All right, that's that's awesome. Modern commute. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you drive, right? Yes. Okay. Well, you drive your car down the road. Rule of law prevents the government from just pulling your car over because they don't like the look of it, and then going through it, which delays you is inconvenient but man it can also be scary and like Chekhov's uh, gun parable if you introduce a gun into a situation there's a chance someone could get shot right so yeah. if police pull you over and things go really really badly a police can justifiably in the eyes of the courts shoot someone in certain situations right so we try to limit that. We try to keep rule of law. The police are going to stop people who might harm other people on the road, right? Not just Thomas driving down the road at the speed limit doing his business. Um, uh, so uh, rule of law in some countries is designed to protect the government. I think you see that in Russia a lot. They use their government apparatus to protect the president of, you know, President Putin. In the United States, uh, it's not so. We use rule of law to limit the government, but also provide regulatory and uh, uh, just basic daily life guidance um, uh, for a society living in close quarters uh, and trying to take care of their families and, you know, uh, generally be happy, right? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Absolutely. Um, but, but Duncan, as an observer sure. of our, of our nation, there are for sure people who are pulled over because they look quote unquote suspicious mm-hmm. or for something super minor, like you've got something dangling from your yep. rearview mirror or, <clears throat> you know, you're a, you know, a person who the police are profiling. I, I mean, I, we all know that, you know, which communities are targeted for profiling, right? So objecti- in, in objectively, theory, yes, yeah. yes, we know. Uh-huh. Yeah. Objectively. Right. So, yeah. so, 
how does the, how do those two things um, coexist then? If, if if the idea is to be have protection for everyone, if if it's not always happening that way, you know, I guess that's why you work the work you do. <laughs> that's but. why I always have a job. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's an intractable uh, conflict at some levels. Like if you give people power to enforce rules, they tend to do it. Uh, that's why we have limitations. Uh, but it has to be done right. And we're human and we make mistakes and things. We have history. Uh, sure. The constitution was written and it's beautiful on paper, but we still had slavery and the ramifications of that continue. Uh, there's racism, there's classism. Uh, absolutely. People have biases and they act on them. I think that's, uh, silly to say otherwise. Um, and I hate, I have definitely had African-American clients who I am sure were pulled over because they were black and nothing more. Um, I've had poor people pull over because their car was dirty and looked like it could possibly have drugs in it. Right. They're just like, Oh, it must have drugs. It's all a mess. And they didn't (laughs) and they were innocent, but um, uh, it's not perfect. Nothing in our country is perfect. And if we don't keep trying to make things better, we don't keep trying to hire better police officers to reward those who do well. If we don't keep getting involved in communities. Um, if communities don't, communities also have to invest other resources. We can't, we can't rely on police to s- solve our problems. Rule of law, as I said, it's arbitrary, right? It takes judgment. If you're speeding down an empty road five miles an hour over, uh, no one should pull you over. It's a waste of everyone's time and money if you're not a danger to anyone. Um, that sort of judgment and that sort of human element within the whole system is going to be omnipresent. However, we can, yeah, I would say we can hire better. We can have other resources attached to it. Um, there's so many different ways to address it. It is a, you're right though. It's a, uh, it's a reality we're always going to address. One of the other like headline or I don't know, something I'm very interested in is the incidence of people who are over convicted or completely falsely convicted for crimes they didn't commit at all. And also, I guess it's kind of two questions in one. You could pick your your adventure. But the other thing that's to me is very shocking and concerning is just all of the stories we hear either firsthand or secondhand about these correctional quote unquote correctional facilities are absolutely shocking. Yep. Violent. Yep. Drug riddled, corrupt nepotism in the system. It's just, it sounds like an absolute, it sounds like hell on earth. And so to put an innocent person in that environment is, is, is seems to be like a double, a doubly horrific, uh, miss, misstep by the powers that be so is that a common thing how do you personally deal with that when you when you see someone who you know is truly innocent and, and yeah i guess the first question would be what what is the incidence of that how common is that if, if you uh, were to guess so within my experiences it's very common people are overcharged a lot and there's a lot of reasons for that um People who are not guilty of what they've been accused of happens way more than I would have expected. 
people who are truly innocent of any criminal activity also i would say higher than uh i expected coming in i thought you know oh, there might be some overcharging there might be but uh sometimes police arrive at a situation and they don't have all the facts and they're making decisions in the moment and even with good intentions and sometimes there's not but even with good intentions they make mistakes and people end up arrested because they need to secure the situation at that particular moment right and once you end up in the court system it's hard to get out of it they tend uh overcharging tends to occur for two reasons one because uh people are overzealous they look at things in the worst possible light without truly thinking about it from a three-dimensional perspective like wait a second step back what was really happening here um uh and two, because uh, the system works way too often where people are charged at a higher level so that prosecutors can negotiate a plea deal at a lower level. And uh, this is something that wasn't inherently designed in the system, but has evolved over time. So oftentimes, we, uh, someone might be charged with, say, assault First, which could be is a serious felony that in Kentucky that because ten to twenty years in prison, uh, if they there's a implication of a serious injury and in an assault or a weapon or something like that, but the prosecutor may only intend to charge assault second or wants the conviction even on assault fourth, which is a misdemeanor. Um, they don't really want that high level, but they know if they charge a lower level. Um, there's not as much impetus for a guilty plea because it's possible a jury could believe at trial that this person is guilty of assault first or second. And then um, that person is not taking the risk of 10 to 20 years in jail when they can accept a plea at two years and, and move on. Right. So uh, the system, the whole plea negotiation thing is, is not good. It's not good for any of us. Um, it's not good for prosecutors. All it does is it's judicial efficiency in that we get people in and out of the courts quicker. Um, if you have a good relationship, there's a good prosecutor, good defense attorney, I think reasonable deals can be done. And as I said, sometimes we negotiate to dismissal. That's the best for anyone if we, if we can get a resolution and not have to carry it through the criminal justice system. But um, uh, people are overcharged all the time. Uh uh, for the reason I talked about, but also uh, sometimes there's politics involved, i.e. victims uh, are upset about something. And I've had more than a couple of people who are true victims of awful crimes. And it's awful to see. I've also had to work with clients who had victims who were actually aggressors and uh, uh, trying to use the legal system to seek revenge. And sometimes it works. Sometimes prosecutors get it. I had a, um, had a case with a, uh, um, uh, where someone accused someone else of stealing property after, uh, 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 a relative died and it was turned out to be a huge fraud scheme by the accuser. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, <laughs> Jesus. yeah, our, our clients had to sit in, but it wasn't in jail. Luckily had paid bail, but, um, had to deal with the court system for a year before it was dismissed, you know, 
it's uh, uh, once it gets into the system, it doesn't go away easily. And for a lot of people, I've had more than enough clients say, you know what? I didn't do this. I'm not guilty of this particular thing, but it's, this is the best outcome for me to move on. Like I will be in jail for 30 days, get out and, and move on. And the consequences are minimal. Whereas if I sit and try to go to trial, I might sit in jail for six months, have a trial. Maybe I'm innocent or not guilty by the jury. Maybe not, but, uh, uh, I could be in jail for five years then. And, uh, I'm not gonna take that risk. Um, that's crazy. It happens all the time. You, you could be charged with something which you could be maybe technically guilty of in some ways. Uh, drugs are a great example. Uh, there's a lot of local police efforts to uh, use confidential informants where they have they bust someone with, say, methamphetamine. And then they in the morning, they tell them, hey, give me someone who deals and uh, uh, by the afternoon and I won't charge you. So they go find someone to sell them meth, maybe $20, $40, $60, right? They're buying from another user. They're, you're not stopping the supply of meth by doing this. But what you have created is a new criminal defendant who is now facing five to 10 years in prison instead of a possession charge of one to three with an assumption that they will go to treatment instead of prison. So... Police get a arrest. Uh, it looks good. They're fighting crime. They're they're fighting trafficking, but really, you just got two users who were going to trade drugs with each other anyways. And we haven't done anything about the supply. So now this person will go to court and they're charged with trafficking uh, because they sold for twenty bucks this quantity of meth. <clears throat> and the prosecutor is like, I don't want to try this because I don't want to put this in front of a jury. I don't want a jury to have to listen to like the ridiculousness of all this. Um, and what our police did and how to justify it, uh, and be like, this person needs to go to jail for 10 years. Uh, and they're like, I'll tell you what, I could probably find a guilty verdict in this, but if you give me, uh, you know, three years to serve, uh, on a lesser trafficking offense, years. we'll, uh, we'll call it even. And then I know when I go talk to my client, I'm like, you will probably be eligible for parole at about the six month mark. And there's a chance that the judge may give you probation. Let's, uh, would you like to try that versus trying to go against the trial and argue for five to 10, uh, against five to 10 years? And I'm like, yeah, I'll take my chance with the judge on probation. I'll go to treatment. Um, I'm a user. <laughs> and the judge is like, the judge may say, wow, this is really a user. They sold drugs. I'll accept this guilty plea. I'll probate you on the condition you complete six months of inpatient treatment. So now we've gone from two users who could have just been sent to treatment in the first place to a convicted felon for trafficking, which will affect so so many opportunities in the future if they do get clean. And then also, I guarantee you, the police are going to charge the first guy with possession in the end anyways. He's not going to get off (laughs) scot-free. And uh, Mm. maybe that person needed treatment too. It's uh, It gets convoluted quickly. For sure. So, yeah, the that whole scenario, I think, deserves a different uh, another look for for folks listening. Sure. Sorry. Yeah. There, there are. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. This the pe- like for the situation of, for whatever reason, somebody gets caught up in a situation where either they are user, they do something technically illegal, or they're completely 
profiled and charged. Mm -hmm. Their options are fight the charge, which could take you said six months in jail, waiting for a day. In court, if you don't get bail, a lot of money. If you don't, yeah, and a lot of people won't get, get bail that they can afford. This happens a lot, but yes. And so then, so that whole time you're forfeiting time with family, you're forfeiting income, education, you're forfeiting work, income, and then there's a chance that because you wanted to fight this, you're at the mercy of the jury. And you might offend slash piss off slash yep. irritate the prosecution team in some way. Yep. We're like, oh, you wanna you wanna make us work fight me? Yeah. You wanna fuck you wanna fuck with me? Like this is what happens. Yep. Sometimes this is my this is my guess. I don't know if that yeah, exactly. Oh, hundred percent. Not always, but it does happen. Uh, if you're really lucky, you get not really lucky. There are a lot of really great prosecutors who want to make their communities better. And they're not gonna get upset if you go to trial. That's the constitutional process. They're also going to listen if there's a better solution. Like maybe the deal to go to treatment might be part of the offer to the judge, right? Or maybe we'll send someone to treatment before they have their trial while they they can't afford their bond, but maybe we get them the treatment instead. Maybe that's what they really need. We get them out of a jail, which uh, has all the issues that you mentioned at various degrees. Um, but uh uh, there's a lot of good judges too who who think this way and like how do I this guy's coming back to my community what does my community need and then as a defense attorney we're kind of lucky in that we just need to represent one person I advocate that client at that moment so I can look at the facts and be like what is the best for this client and sometimes uh, it is filing a motion like the police did a uh, the search they did wasn't good or their handling of this confidential informant is flawed. We don't want that in our community. And what happens is if I'm successful and I have been successful in actually those two motions, both those motions, I've been successful uh, saying that police have handled confidential informants incorrectly and their searches have been illegal. Um, good police management, good city management, take that. And like, how do we change our policies, our processes? And I have one police department like, we're not going to do this sort of CI work like this. We're going to change it. I need to target inflow of drugs. I don't need to target my users. I've had uh, new policies written by police departments on search procedures. Hey, we're not going to do this anymore. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how we're going to use our canine dogs. We're not. Um, and they, when good people modify and adjust, uh, communities get better and it builds legitimacy. Um uh, it can't just be, we look into it. Uh, we have some new training. It has to be, here's the policy and here's how it works every day. And then it has to be implemented and it takes time to demonstrate that, uh, some new policies, uh, are working and are done correctly. And, uh, mm -hmm. for some people where the change is not fast enough and it's not, um, strong enough. And, uh, I actually agree with those people. We uh, we are not getting better fast enough. Totally. Um, and w I think your perspective on policing would be very interesting and nuanced because, you know, just speaking with you, you're a logical, thoughtful person, <laughs> rational, and your background is quite interesting, right? Because you have a mix of DC is very, you know, over there, you know, you're – rubbing elbows with like 
very liberal people, very, you can network and meet very powerful kind of establishment, if we call that, people from both sides. And then, you know, you're active in military, foreign service, you live in rural Kentucky, as you said. So you're not, you're not ensconced in one or the other type of environment. Um, and, and you work in the system, you, you have to collaborate with your, yeah, your police or your peers that's in true. some scenarios. Uh, I mean, uh, I'm, so sorry, go ahead. No, yeah. Just, so what do you, you know, the conversation over the last few years about policing has come to the fore yeah. and, you know, the challenges are still there. So for you, you know, how do you, how do you conceptualize of the institution of policing in, let's say in your community specifically to keep it less abstract? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast. Please leave the show a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To enjoy full-length video episodes, head over to YouTube. You can search Bro Nouveau or simply follow the link in the episode description below. If you or someone you know would make a fascinating guest for this kind of conversation, you can reach me via email. That address is contact at bronouveau.com. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the show. As a Marine, with other Marines, I went through doors and I didn't know what was on the other side of that door. We didn't know if we were going to get shot and we were shot at and I shot back at people. I, I understand what that entails. A completely different discussion, right? But I respect a, someone who would show up to a scene of an emergency, not know what's going on, and try and figure out what to do. Okay? It's nerve-wracking. It's intense. And so you have to salute first responders and police in that respect. Um, for me, it's about what's your overall intent long-term? Are you trying to solve problems in your community? If that's the case, I love you. If your intent is to arrest people, I hate you because that's a tool in your toolbox <laughs> But it better not be your goal in life because it, right. it's short-sighted and doesn't help. Um, people are going to get arrested. It's part of policing. It happens. Uh, but that better not be your goal. And uh, uh, I would say we, I love that we're trying to integrate more uh, resources into the problem-solving Um uh, the mental health aspects cannot be understated, overstated enough. Uh, I have truly, truly schizophrenic clients. I've had clients with uh, who are great on medication and off medication, can't control themselves uh, for various reasons. Um, and having police that have to respond to that, if they don't have compassion or understand what's going on, uh, it can go very badly. And sometimes that's not the police officer's fault because they're not trained properly and so forth. And I only have so much time and they don't know what's exactly happening, but we don't have great places to help with the intermediate issues. Like someone who with medication and treatment could get better, but they're too poor to afford it for themselves. And there's no community housing that they could live in where they actually get support. Um, and then it spirals into a situation where police are called. And the tool is to arrest people at that point. Uh, um, and then you go to a jail where 
there is no mental health treatment. They can't give you medications. And uh, you're with people who have other mental health issues and they make each other worse. Um, and then you have guards who don't know how to control it, who aren't trained. Uh, guards get stressed. And so they're trying to maintain security and safety. And they do things that are what you and I would consider inappropriate and wrong. And uh, if they step back and think about it, they would probably too. Um, but in the situation, they might not be fully educated. So when we have, do you have an example? Sure. <clears throat> if you have someone who uh, suffers from uh, a mental health issue and can't discern reality from what's going on in their imagination and they're out in public and usually this is exacerbated by substance abuse. Uh, uh, people get far worse with meth, heroin, uh, fentanyl is a little bit different, but um, if they're doing substance abuse and they're out in the street and they're not able to discern reality from, and they're causing issues uh, as far as people not knowing, like, like maybe they're in the middle of the street uh, without a shirt on and dancing around and the police have to come because uh, traffic stops because no one wants to hit these people. And also people don't want to bring their kids around a shopping area or something like that, where this is happening. Like they don't know how this person's going to react uh, with the right compassion and, and, and help. You can get that direct that person towards treatment and towards health. But what ends up happening is police show up and they have to arrest someone because there's a civil disturbance of some kind. That person gets taken to jail. They're in jail. They might be, they won't get any more medication. So the, the, their inability to discern reality continues while they're in jail. A guard might be seeing them in their cell doing cartwheels with no clothes on. And the guard doesn't know what to do other than lock the door and um, call, call their supervisor. Uh, and then this person isn't eating properly, isn't uh, uh, able to wash themselves or take care of themselves properly. And we have some mental health centers where they can go to and we put people there for sometimes, but sometimes that slow because it takes a judge's order or uh, it's such that they're contained in the cell, but they're, they're just getting worse inside their own heads, uh, but they're not a threat to anyone. So they're like, so the guards just let them be and that makes people worse. And so, uh, uh, how could we address that? Um, if there was routes towards mental health, when the police first arrive, uh, there had some discretion to get people, uh, if we actually had resources where there were doctors who could evaluate and prescribe medications or treatment plans, uh, to people who couldn't afford it, uh, without insurance, um, uh, that would help. But ultimately, uh, uh, these are problems that we have to deal with on a daily basis. But as soon as they get put in the jails and they're outside of sight of most of society, uh, it's not an issue. And it doesn't become as to the forefront the way it should. And if you can drive away from it and you don't have to see it, then mm. – um, Right. Yeah. But Out of sight, out of mind. At the same time – one of the biggest problems I think we have with policing is we hire incorrectly. We hire, uh, it's too militaristic in nature that we, we have too much, uh, when you're, when you're a soldier 
and you're trying to take ground and you're assaulting, it's a very different mentality than if you need to show up and solve a problem. But sometimes solving that problem requires that you use violence or force. Sometimes police have to draw their guns. Uh, I think it's done way too much. But if you're trained, like drawing the gun is the safest and default answer, then what's the point? Gun triggers are going to be pulled if the guns are drawn. Exactly. And yeah. uh, So, but we're over militaristic. The, you see the uniforms, you see the, uh, um, the equipment, um, the demand for uh, surveillance and, and things like that, which again, we have the fourth amendment. It's a great protection, but it's the government wins the vast majority of any challenges towards uh, these sort of uh, uh, litigation issues about surveillance, about um, use of force, hands down, good police chiefs, good city managers, good citizens demand things to be different. Uh, Good police sergeants, like, how can I solve this problem before it? devolves into a violent situation um Mm. and how can we if i don't have to arrest someone but i can interrupt the pathway to bad behavior like maybe that helps more um there's no magic bullet otherwise we would have done it right and uh uh there's a lot more low income and minority people being arrested than there are uh, middle high income Caucasian Americans. That's objective fact. Middle income, high income Caucasian Americans use drugs. They do illegal things. Um, uh, it's uh, right. it's a choice. They commit uh, domestic violence. They yep. commit fraud. They commit. Yep. They steal. Yep. Lo- you know, it's like. Yep. We're all. Everyone is inclined to be self serving and do bad things <laughs> well as i said i go back to i generally believe people are good in all my experiences i think most people want to do good things but yes mm-hmm. bad things happen and uh right right yeah. we punish that, i mean yeah it takes the 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 potential is there it's up to everyone to determine which impulses they serve or how the, the values that define how they live their lives right of course yes <clears throat> on the on the hiring thing so there's this hilarious comedian. His name's Tim Dillon. He's absolutely savage. I think you'd actually like him because he does a lot of like political Sweet. commentary. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a bit about, he's like, he's like, everyone I know who's a police officer should not be a police officer. And he, he says like, yeah, you remember like Johnny, Johnny from high school. Like he took the disabled girl and threw a wheelchair over the fence yeah, he's the police chief. Like, <laughs> yep. There is a lot of bullies who love uh, being in power and lording things over people, and not holding themselves to the same standard. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, yep. On that, can you explain to us what is qualified immunity for police officers, and uh, why does it exist? Oh man, so this is not something I deal with very much, to be honest with you, because uh, I'm dealing mainly with the. Uh, uh, my clients and their immediate needs. And I got to tell you, like for a lot of times I don't really, it doesn't matter to me so much what happens to the police officer as much as my clients find some sort of uh, uh, good result. And then when it comes to the police officers after the fact, 
for me, I just assume that they're not going to get punished. Like it's just qualified immunity is such that I assume that almost every instance I've had, the police officer is not going to get punished. But when I have good relationships with police officer management, they look at it and they're like, oh yeah, we don't want this to happen anymore. And they adjust it. And so I've seen police officers who, when I first had them in court, I thought they were really awful people. And then I've watched them over time and I've seen good management work with them. And cases later, I'm like, wow, this person's really changed how they do things. And, and I kind of like, I can respect how they're improving. And Mm. from a reality perspective, like I know they're not going away. So I want them to get better uh, because I can't force that. The qualified immunity is so strong. There's almost zero punishment uh, for police officers that, and also most of the, the stupid little wrong things that I feel like they do on a regular basis that could be avoided uh, aren't heinous, horrendously heinous. Like they're not shooting people. It's picking people to stop and frisk, picking people to search for ridiculous reasons not because there's actual crime but because they don't like the way that person looks for some reason uh it's uh which when they do that they do it to like 10 or 15 people and they release you know 14 of them and only one person comes to court and they're the guilty one they're the one who had drugs on them right so uh so being able to say hey this wasn't right for this person and then the police chief or sergeant to go back hey you're not going to do this with anyone else either so just stop it like because we can't go to court and have that happening. The judge is upset. The prosecutor doesn't like it. And good prosecutors go back and talk to police when this stuff happens. Like you need to fix how we're doing things. Um, But that's not happening enough uh, where we have certain aspects within police who feel like they want to be in control of things and they're protecting police officers and they have to basically hammer back at any change or any uh, different way of thinking uh, uh, in order to protect the police officers' employments and livelihoods and so on, which is, uh, which I'll go back to and say, if someone's willing to put their life on the line to go into an unknown situation for our own safety, like that's someone to respect. Uh, how they make their decisions and how we hire people to make those decisions uh, is something that we got to work on. One of the positions I've had for a while is that I think when there's a civilian complaint or any type of investigation needs to happen into whether it's like systemic department patterns or individual officer patterns is to have at the minimum an external investigation body do the review, not the police department itself. So let's say like officer A shoots someone and they die and then you know the the line is always after you know they're put on administrative leave after an internal review they're found to be you know in compliance xyz right and so it's like that, and we talk about accountability and trust in the community that does not produce accountability and i've had former police officers on here who say like you know you wouldn't you wouldn't <clears throat> for bridge collapses you wouldn't hire a baker to investigate it it's like sure but we can at least hire a different engineer from than the the firm that designed the bridge, right? Except for, except I for so- policing isn't a bridge. It's not an engineering problem. It's a human issue. It's we've had police in some, some form or another for hundreds of years, and uh, it 
to do it well takes good training, takes time, takes experience. But uh, we as a community can step back and be like, like this isn't working. We don't like this. How does it change? Uh, this is not – you and I might not be engineers. might not be able to tell you the tensile strength of a bridge or what materials need to be known. But we can say – we can look at the actions of a police officer and say, I, I don't like this as from a human sense. How does it, how do we change it? Um, I would disagree with that analogy wholeheartedly. Uh, we as society can understand uh, policing. That's not um, – but totally. I do think it's smart to have, uh, yes, third-party outside investigation for sure. Sometimes law firms do it for cities. Obviously, the federal government does it in some cities where there's decrees. Uh, if there's a shooting in Kentucky, it's not the local department that investigates the Kentucky State Police. But I'll tell you that there is a huge brotherhood and fraternity um, where they look out for each other. And that just a reality. Um, sometimes good police officers want other police officers to be good. And they want to hold to standards. There can be uh, – uh, a fraternity type environment where uh, there's pressure to uh, keep things internal and keep things non-transparent. And that's not helpful. Transparency and policing. Um, uh, yes. Builds community trust. And I agree with you about third party uh, investigations uh, as necessary, but I do think a lot of it can just be solved by good management, good leadership saying, we're not going to do this in our department. We're going to be better. How can we be better? Right. And to get good management, we need to have the profession to be attractive to top talent, to look at it like yeah. any other industry that's competing for talent. And they recruit very heavily from ex-military, which is a mistake. Um, uh, you should have people with military experience, but you should have people with all sorts of other experiences. It's also something that unfortunately uh, you, uh, to talk about generalities is you talk about the, the liberal um, bias against policing, which uh, it, why are people like that coming into policing uh, who want to solve problems or want to change things? Uh, because also, when you're on the street and it's your life on the line, you think a little bit differently. Um, it, 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 it's not easy. It's complicated, but it's complicated in a human sense. We can understand it and we can, well, we can make it better. Uh, um, one of the best, uh, uh, I watch a lot of body camera footage, <laughs> a lot of body camera footage. Um, <laughs> most police officers handle themselves quite well. Uh, uh, but one in particular I would say was awesome. I watched a police officer who responded to a call, um, was talking to someone. Uh, there was a, a gun was found. There was some, uh, some other nonsense in the area, possible burglary, Police officer uh, um, was talking on the body camera to someone who was at the area who was possibly involved in the burglary, possibly not. And that person was obviously having a tough time. And, and the police officer was actually helping coach her through domestic violence uh, issues. Like, how can you get help? How can you find stuff out? And then there's immediately there's a commotion and some sort of disruption. 
the officer responds very well, goes from this very calm, like, how can I help you conversation to drawing a weapon, looking at this confrontational scene, uh, ending it with uh, the threat of force without using force, has a situation under control, returns to calm, uh, uses a command voice, returns to calm voice, like, all right, talk to me, what's going on here? And then works through the situation. There is someone who gets arrested, but uh, ultimately a lot of other officers in the scene were panicking and were being very aggressive. And this person solved the whole problem by going through levels of force without um, uh, appropriately and instantaneously. And I'm like, I can respect that uh, uh, sort of um, approach, but uh, we also have to um, give them the resources. I.e as I said, especially mental health, substance abuse, uh, stuff. Uh, um, yeah, it can't be, it can't be one or the other. The police are going to be part of our future and we just need to do it better. Uh, and good police make our communities better. I, I really like a lot of the police officers in my community. That's great. Yeah, that's, I, I agree, man. My, I think, like we said, you know, even before, the kind of 2020 post George Floyd movement, my position was always kind of similar to what you said earlier, which is that, you know, if someone breaks into my house and I'm in danger, I'm going to call 911. Right. So I'm not going to just completely dismiss or devalue the lives of the individuals who would risk their lives for a stranger you know, to me, that's uh, too much of a contradiction to just completely dismiss the entire institution. Um, and I agree. I think, you know, the, the institution isn't going anywhere. There are, um, you know, necessary functions that police provide that are completely essential. And so, yeah, my, my kind of thought is like, as a citizen would be to just apply maybe some ideas from like the business world or like organizational theory. Like how do we improve this organization as a whole rather than just saying like they're all bad or, you know, yeah, this type of uh non-nuanced approach. I, I agree. I don't know. I think the solution is different in, in different communities. Uh, mm-hmm. I do think that community based approach is a good idea. Um, what you need in one community is different from another community. Uh, more standardized training would be great. More standardized uh, 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 federal support of uh, away from technology and weapons, and more towards uh, treatment, which does happen. It's not um, or support from the mental health aspects, from the uh, social services aspects to support police when they're doing things would definitely make things better. Um, we, uh, you said something interesting about how you'd call nine one one, and uh, uh, that's a luxury a lot of people don't have. They're not going to call nine one one because they know. Again, go back to Chekhov's gun principle. They introduce police into a scene, someone gets arrested, so uh, they don't want that to be them. Uh, they don't have the trust and the belief that they can go to the police for the answers. Um, I know uh, we talked a lot about um off offline about uh, some 
gun issues and so forth, which is a very complex, separate discussion. But I would one thing I thought about and tell you is we don't have a lot of burglaries where I live. Uh, there are a lot of guns in people's houses. Um, obviously, there's a whole facet of guns that's horrible. But judges, police, citizens, residents, no, you don't go into someone's house because you get shot. And we do not have a ton of burglaries and residences. We have very, very few. Um, uh, we have a lot of other issues that we're trying to work through, <laughs> like any community. But uh, <laughs> right. um, it's not a resource that's equally – if you're living in Louisville and you're African-American, you're probably not going to call the police if someone breaks into your house because there's there's issues, history, and – too much chance that there could be problems for you in long term. Uh, not always, not like situations are different, but uh, um, getting that integrity, that trust uh, is hard and it can be destroyed very quickly by individuals, uh, individual officers, individual people. I hope that everyone would look at the George Floyd stuff, every police officer and say, that is awful. That should never happen. And uh, yet it did. And, uh, it's happened before and it's probably someone thinks similar. It's probably going to happen again uh, because we are not, uh, we are not forcing uh, growth and development the way I think we should. Well said. Yeah, totally. That's another, that's a great perspective, right? Because I'm a white guy. I didn't grow up in a poor neighborhood where the police were constantly a presence. And so my perception of them is going to be very different than someone who did grow up in that type of environment where there were, they, uh, the police were right in that community often because whatever the era of when they grew up, uh, more aggressive policing or just because that's a hotspot area where they know there's going to be issues. So yeah, that's a great, and the, a very good point. And I've been to conferences where I've heard scientific studies that, that sort of intrusive policing mentally affects young black men, young black women, uh, other minorities throughout their lives. It becomes something that uh, changes your basic perspective towards government and makes stress situations occur when you and I as white guys growing up, I'm, I assume somewhat affluent, uh, uh, didn't have like we could turn to a police officer in a mall and be like, Hey, how do I get from here to here? Right. If you've been over policed, uh, and harassed, um, uh, Terry stop search, meaning that they've searched you for weapons on the your street corner multiple times. You don't ask directions in the mall <laughs> to that person because you're worried that they're going to start doing that to you. And, and that's going to happen all over again. And it becomes stressful when that person uniform walks by you. Um, so there are uh, uh, effects that we're beginning to become much more aware about and how do we move forward? How do we change things? Um, as I said, there's no magic bullet, but I would say that we need to hire better. We need to invest proper resources and um you know, we didn't talk about bail. We didn't talk about jails too much, but uh, most of these institutions have a role. Like there's stuff that they should do. And if we look back at the constitutional reasons they exist, it's logical. It makes sense if you, uh, but we're not applying them properly. We're not 
resourcing them properly and we're over relying like we over rely on incarceration if we're gonna let people out in three five years why are we incarcerating them that long why aren't we seeking some sort of rehabilitation as opposed to warehousing and uh um why what benefit is there just having someone in for 10 to 20 years in a prison like what how does that they're still coming out but then they come out 10 to 20 years older with no education no ability to work uh, obviously there's multiple reasons for incarceration but i've also had addicts where i go visit the day they're arrested and basically in withdrawal and incomprehensible two weeks later after being incarcerated i could go have a real discussion with them i wish they weren't being held at a jail but i do understand the need for isolation to get through that initial withdrawal so that we can have a good discussion about what they want for their future and how we're going to resolve their legal issues. Awesome. Well, that's, that's where you're coming from, which is a very good hearted place. Man. And thank you, Duncan, for the work you're doing and for, you know, your generous, uh, generously sharing your time and, and your experiences with us. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it. your curiosity, Thomas. I, I love to talk about these issues and, and work with people. So anytime, just let me know. Awesome. Is there any uh, <clears throat> education or resources or things you would direct folks to, 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 you know, learn more about the work you're doing and any of these topics? Um, man, there's so many, uh, I would, uh, I would love to recommend people to go visit the Kentucky DPA website. If they're interested in this sort of stuff, I would also recommend people look at the NACDL, uh, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, as well as the National Association of Public Defenders. Um, Gideon's Promise is a great organization working to for representation. Uh, you can see a lot of organizations online and you can branch out. There's a lot of people trying to come up with great ideas, not just defense, not just lawyers, but you know, mayors, city council people, community leaders, police leadership. It's out there. Awesome. Hi, Duncan. Have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Thomas. Bye.